0: Welcome to The Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. And hi, Stephen. One more time for the last episode of the season. How are you? I'm very well, Paul. And yourself? Very, very good. And very excited that we finished the season on a high note. I'm very excited about this episode. So maybe for those who haven't followed us, bad people, if you're not listening since the start, can you tell us a little bit what it is about this last episode of every season we're doing?
1: It's kind of talking about the end game, isn't it? Or or the, the outcome of a business. You know the, yeah. the, the companies that we and all venture capitalists invest in, they share similar ambitions, they want to build global companies, they want to lead their categories, they want to build companies that endure. But also, at some point in that journey, they want to achieve some kind of outcome that allows them to realise value, perhaps allow us as their venture funder to exit the business, perhaps to be acquired, perhaps to, to list on the public market. Though, so, you know, the former in terms of being acquired is probably more likely for, for European mm-hmm. companies. True. That's a point in the distance. And, you know, some people will say, you know, just build a great business. You know, the outcome takes care of itself. And that is true to an extent. But we also believe that long term readiness can have a significant impact on the outcome and, and the exit value. And we've talked about this as the kind of the art of exiteering, the taking this long term view in order to prepare yourself. And I'm delighted that Catherine Burkitt, who's the CFO at GoCardus, is joining us to discuss this topic today. Just a brief 10, 20 seconds on a, on a very long career at um, her previous business. So Catherine was previously part of the management team over a 17-year period at a company called Interroot. Oh. Um, delivered quite extraordinary revenue growth. and When she joined as um, a member of the management team, They were pretty much bankrupt. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's Um, right. And they grew to 700 million in revenue and 170 million EBITDA. And during her 14 years as CFO, she completed 12 acquisitions and and was integral to the the sale of Interroot to GTT for over 2 billion. (laughs) dollars in 2016, is that correct, Catherine? Uh, 2018. 2018. So, Catherine, welcome.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: So, there's lots of things that we could talk about within that, that journey, but I'm just going to jump straight in. You know, it, it is quite a story. 17 years with one company, starting from really, as I a sort of bankrupt position, 14 years then as CFO and achieving that kind of outcome. How do you respond to the statement that CEOs should just focus on building a great company and the exit will take care of itself?
2: So I think generally speaking, I, I broadly agree with it. I think that if you are solely focused on an exit from day one, you're probably not going to get there. You know, I think there's different ways to approach it. and You always need to have the end game in sight at some level. But I think when you're building a business from nothing, which, you know, it was a slightly strange scenario in the sense that we had, a real asset and a real operating business with $100 million a year of running costs, but we had no revenue. So that's kind of hence why the business was basically bankrupt. We were very lucky to have very incredibly supportive shareholders who were willing to back us on a journey to take into to be obviously a much larger and bigger and successful business and ultimately to the end game from their perspectives, exiting because our majority shareholder had invested significant amount of capital, you know, think well over a billion euros into the business prior to the business going in and out of receivership. So for them, it was a big bet for them to take on us as a management team. So we always knew the exit was there as an end game. But in those early days, the only thing we could worry about was building a good business. And we did that from twofold. Firstly, getting customers on board. We had none, literally none. So we had to build our reputation. The one thing we had was a very, very good telecoms network with very, very high bandwidth. It was the last one in Europe to be built. So that gave us something different and gave us the opportunity to sell to people but we as a team focused absolutely on one, numbers, you know, thinking how much our cash burn was going to be and what could we manage to and what were our shareholders willing to continue to invest in the business to take it to profitability. But two, and most importantly, building a successful business. And we did that by thinking about our customers, always caring about the service that our customers received and also about the kind of culture we built, the sorts of people we needed to hire to make the business a success. And we didn't put timelines on the kind of the end game. yes. To be perfectly honest, none of us wanted it to be 15 years from sort of relaunch the business, which is actually what it was. You know, I think probably we set out thinking maybe it would be a five to seven year journey, which, you know, ended up being double that. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, and I think in later years, to be fair, our philosophy changed a little bit and I'll come on to that in a second. But in that beginning period, the only thing, and we would never have survived if we didn't, was building a business and sort of taking the appropriate risks and making sure that we were worrying about our customers, getting a good reputation, continuing to grow revenue, treating our investors' money very seriously and taking it a step at a time. And yeah, you know, at some level what we did was, you know, pretty extraordinary, but we did it in very, very small steps. I do think in the later stages, we did turn the focus a little bit more to kind of thinking about how we were going to exit the business, particularly because our majority shareholder by that point was kind of, you know, really at a point where they'd invested so long that they really needed needed to exit so things change later but in those and to any sort of, of sort of notions early VC type businesses, I'd tell everyone to be not worrying about the exit and focusing on building a business you can be proud of because I do think then you know truthfully the exit sort of will take care of itself.
1: I really love that aphorism building a, a business to be proud of so with that in mind how can companies position themselves to maximize shareholder value from from day
2: one. So I think there's two things. I think there's, you know, the actual what you do as a business. Clearly, if you are trying to define a category or if your product is so kind of, you know, differential and so unique and somebody's going to want it, then, you know, that is is vastly important. So, you know, I think you do need to really worry about what you're selling. Is it reliable? Is it scalable as well? Because in the end, you know, the most successful exits are going to be a business that can scale. So there's no point creating a product that works for 10 customers that's never going to work for you know, maybe it's at least a thousand depending on the size of customer that you're going out for. So I think really thinking as much as you can ahead of the game and worrying about what you've built, being able to cope with much bigger volumes, worrying about it being different, it giving you a differentiating factor. Uh, But also I think really building kind of the right ethics in the business and, you know, caring about your customers, treating your customers well, caring about staff, investing in people because they will become, in all likelihood, a real asset of the business and help to maximize shareholder value sort of later down the line. So I think there's all the, all the things about the strategy and getting that right and just, you know, taking stages in building the business. But I do think as well that you can prep sort of while you start, start of the conversation off, really. I do think, and I think particularly, you know, once the business reaches a point where it's potentially got a CFO in place and that CFO has probably got more time and headspace to kind of focus on these things, actually thinking about where do I need to be from both a kind of reporting and analysis data everything that's going to support the story that you're going to go out and try and exit the business with eventually. And I think there is a point in the journey where you do need to start thinking about those things because it's a much, much easier to do if you're very, very well prepared. And I think you know, it's important to always put the business first and it's never the driver, but making sure you've got the backup you know, in terms of data you know, to really, really sell the story to a potential buyer or to the market, whichever way you're going, other than other private investors, I think it's absolutely critical.
1: I really like that comment in the middle that you're building a business that post-acquisition is going to deliver even more value. You're also building a business that people are really going to want to buy. And when you're talking about the ethics of an organisation, I think that's quite an interesting thing to bear in mind the exit isn't an end point yep. for the business or your customers or, or for many of your employees as well. You said there are some things that businesses can do. Are there specific steps that you took uh, into route that you perhaps quite early on that you believe were critical to maximising that uh, exit value? Yes
2: yeah, so I think in all honesty because we had quite a long time uh, to kind of ultimately get to that point and in all honesty We had a couple of sort of failed attempts in the early days when when interview wasn't kind of, you know, from a numbers perspective, didn't stack up to, you know, where it got to in the end. But I do think that we as a business matured. So because of that, we were able to really think through the sort of data that would help to kind of back the story up and make sure we got a number of years in history to show on that data. So make it really, really thinking that through with the the exit that we sort of were successful on was a massive help. I also have to say that we sort of did go through sort of semi-sales processes a couple of times. One in the very early days when we brought equity in through Dubai Holdings, and then later when that changed hands to private equity. And I know private equity sometimes gets a bad name, but for me, on all honesty, when we brought our PE guys involved, the rest of our shareholding was with the private Swiss family and who were very, very hands-off as investors. I do think the scrutiny that the private equity guys put on us as a business from our numbers perspective massively helped us to be prepared for the due diligence that we went through at the point that we had the successful exit. And also, kind of most importantly, to think about what that data was. And it became very, very important because we actually, during this period, also did our biggest acquisition. So we bought a business that was effectively two-thirds the size of Interroot in 2015, and in doing that, so we knew that then we weren't just presenting one business's numbers as a combined business. You know, as a combined business, we were selling the business three years later, but it was actually you know two businesses together, and we had to make sure that all of our data was consistent because we ran the two businesses as one. Well, we were presenting ourselves absolutely as one business, which was completely right, but of course, data would come from different sources because we hadn't actually owned EasyNet for three entire years. And secondly, the data, to be honest, wasn't in a great shape at the point we bought that business. So we did spend a lot of time ensuring that we got data in a really, really good place before we kind of launched the actual sales process. And I think that was absolutely invaluable in kind of making it the success that we did. And having a clear story, you know, being articulate about your strategy, as you say, being articulate about where the business was going post. You know, depending, you know, what's going to happen, you know, we were... At the time, potentially, it could have gone to kind of another round of private equity or investors. So it could have gone to financial investors as well as kind of obviously as it was sold on to effectively a strategic buyer. But either way, you do need a story around where how the business continues post an exit event and really have to think about how you're going to articulate that, how you're going to present it when you get to the stage of a management presentation. I think it helps massively if you as a management team are very aligned and everyone's bought into the story. And I actually do think it helps if you've got a very stable management team who have worked together for a number of years and kind of know both each other, but also all of the decisions you've made and why. And all of that, you know, is kind of, we went through many, many years, obviously building a business, which I do think meant when we got into that sort of pressured sales process, that we were able always to one, answer questions, but two, talk very coherently as a management team together.
1: That point of alignment, I think is a critical one we've seen situations where that has, you know, deals have come undone slightly because there is a slight nuance of difference or quite big differences sometimes between the the positioning and the expectations of different uh, team members. Can you describe the actual sales process itself? You know, how it came about, how long it took, any particular things that you felt could have tripped you up along the way? And then lastly, what you attribute to the kind of success?
2: Yeah. So I'll start by almost taking a step back. So Our private sort of shareholder was always the driving force behind really any exit, really never wanted to go down the route of putting in through on the market. One, because they actually felt that it would kind of make it look like they were kind of in a position where they absolutely needed to sell and so therefore would be degrading value, but also because they were actually a very patient investor and they actually thought for many years the best value would be got by one buyer coming and speaking to us who really, really wanted the business. So that was always kind of the philosophy. So over the years, we had various approaches from people. We talked to people, you know, sometimes longer than others, but it never came to any fruition. What then happened is, you know, we then had our kind of private equity guys in who came on board as part of the board and obviously as the minority shareholder. And they really changed the way that we ran the business from a strategic point, but also thinking about that kind of end game of exit. One, they allowed us to really scale. So they supported the management team to effectively do the very big acquisition, which was really transformational for Interroot. This was kind of three years prior to selling. And they gave us the ability, one, we raised debt to fund the acquisition. So we went out to capital markets and rose, and rose debt, you know, through both a public bond and a term loan B. And that meant we could fund the acquisition. But what that meant, it just took us up to the next scale. So we went from 400 million to 300 million turnover. So it's a 700 million turnover. And through, you know, the integration of those two businesses and achievement of synergies, we eventually, we finally got into to where we'd always wanted to be, which was effectively generating free cash flow of broadly 30 million after, after debt. So, you know, we really totally had finished the turnaround at that point. So I think that's how relevant, because the other thing they, the, you know, the private equity guys really helped us think as a management team is the amount of preparation, which I've kind of talked about, that you need to put in in order to kind of run a successful sales process. But they also, once you know, our private shareholder really had sort of reached the point where they decided, actually, I think we do need to actually go and market into it and really try and actually run a, a formal process, how best to run that process. And I've got to say, they were basically right. We had two banks engaged. We had Credit Suisse here in London, who were always kind of the Swiss family's backers, but also Evercore, who are a, a sort of a US sort of small, more boutique-y, very much sort of prevalent in the sort of uh, telecom space. And so they ran the joint mandate jointly. And we went for a full-on sales process. You know, we went out to a lot of potential buyers with an information memorandum. We then sort of took ran a very, very tight timetable that said first time, you know, first round bids on this date, shortlisted it down to 10 buyers. Of those 10 buyers, we took all through, well, no, actually shorted it down, we actually got well over 20 bids, but we shortlisted down to 10. We basically ran 10 people through full DD. Which was very challenging. Huh. <laughs> so, I mean, we did it, you know, it was a very, very controlled process. So, you know, one we actually did, and it's in talking about the preparation, we did both financial vendor due diligence, but also we did vendor co- uh, commercial due diligence as well with OCC. So, um, KPMG did our financial DD and OCC our commercial. And so it meant that also prior to all the sort of actually getting the bids in, we'd done a lot of work, both from, you know, particularly my team, but also the strategy team in order to get. All of our sort of ducks in order, and get the story very succinct, and actually make sure we have got all the data, because we've been interrogated by both, you know, the, the finance DD people and, and the commercial DD people. And I do think that made a very, very significant difference in being able to run a tight process. So we got down to ten players. Then we did ten management presentations in one week, as well as ten separate Q and A on top of that. So you can imagine kind of quite how intense that that process was but we actually stuck them then to 60 questions each and we actually held that line. So everybody post that, you know, post those management presentations. They were really limited on the number of questions they could ask. Everybody could see everybody's answers. So you that's, were aware that there were That's really interesting, is that normal? Is that- um, no, but we decided to share information equally amongst people because it that's meant really that one, they knew other people had asked a certain question, but two, it, so they knew it was a competitive process. But also, I think it also helped us to kind of cut people off from asking the same thing. So made for it to be a bit more efficiently run. So we went from 10, got the second round bids in, went down to three. But all of those three bids went up pretty substantially in the second round, which was, I think, a huge testament to, I think, probably the management presentations. You know, I think the team as a whole came into our own in in those meetings because I think it was very clear that we were able to answer every question that we were asked. We talked about the business with such great in-depth knowledge because we'd all been there so long. And we were very careful about who presented in those meetings. You know, we, we picked the people who were very comfortable talking about the business and were unable to kind of really present well. And then we had one-on-one sessions because, as you know, you know, some of the management team are better just in that one-on-one being grilled about the network detail or, or whatever that may be. So we would thought very carefully about how we kind of sold the story because at the end of the day as well, we were a very ethical bunch. So we wanted to make sure we also were not, you know, we gave people the right access, but as well that we were, we told the truth. You know, we basically said, you know, things as they were, you know, the things that weren't so great, you know, we bought an SMB business as part of Easynet, and that was always going to be a challenge, quite frankly, to run in that space because in internet world prices decline, you know, it ultimately you get big churn in that that particular area. But we thought very carefully about that and tried to head off those problems kind of ahead of the game. So I think there were certain things that could have tripped us up and and it's very interesting because I think in, in a sort of a previous attempt to sell the business going back a few years, we did get tripped up on really not being able to explain the dynamics well enough around our revenue. And that was about the fact that, you know, we had a lot of a big contract base. So we, we took, you know, we basically sold long term contracts, which revenue was recognized monthly, but people paid in different profiles, some in advance, some in arrears. And we took bookings numbers and kind of we, we didn't do a very good job early on of sort of reconciling everything between kind of what was bookings in the sales system and what actually hit revenue in the accounting system. We sorted all that out. I think being able to kind of show that all the numbers stacked up from your sales in and your bookings in to kind of, you know, the revenue that you actually represent in the P&L was really, really important. Um, secondly, the balance sheet. You know, I think it's very interesting. You know, when I was first CFO of Interroot, I, um, you know, one, partly because of inexperience, but I think also because of the stage of business we were at at the time, all our focus was on the P&L and EBITDA and worrying about kind of we got enough cash in the band to survive, quite frankly. So we didn't put a lot of thinking about how the balance sheet looked, And actually, it was a fairly complicated balance sheet, big fits, assets, a lot of deferred revenue being the biggest other item on the the balance sheet. And we didn't really put a lot of thought into that. Again, the private equity guys really helped us rethink it. But the one area where we were really, at the end, kind of battling our way to to sort of finalise, and we did, and we got the data all together, but it did take some epic efforts from, from my team, was around deferred revenue. And I think it's, you know, it doesn't affect all all businesses, but anybody who does kind of sell kind of, you know, annuity revenue paying in advance, clearly deferred revenue is a a big number on the balance sheet. And I think being able to really, really explain that and think about whether it's actually cash value going forward or whether it should be a debt-like adjustment, that was the single biggest issue that, that we faced through that process. Thankfully, we were able to show that that deferred revenue was refreshing because, you know, most of our contracts were renewing. And therefore you just kind of replace one annual contract with another annual contract a year later. So we basically did win the argument. But that was was definitely the one where I think hadn't I probably didn't put myself, you know, enough foresight in enough early enough. But um I think therefore always thinking about trying to anticipate the thing that might trip you up with advice from you know new shareholders who come in, or maybe if you've got a debt provider who starts quizzing you on things, I do think you should be very open to challenge as a management team, but particularly as a CFO, because I think that enables you to really think hard about those things that may be thrown to you when you're trying to achieve you know that that successful exit for your shareholders. So I think lots of reasons why we were successful but broadly you know I worked with a very very talented team in through as I do now obviously at Goldcardless too but we were very coherent we shared this same vision and strategy and we knew how to work together and I think that is is hugely important. Secondly we got our data in order very 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 you know clear to have everything in Thirdly, and I shouldn't actually underestimate this, you know, our legal counsel was also exceptional and he made sure that we'd got, we knew where our risks were from a legal perspective. You know, and there weren't, you know, there weren't none, you know, there were one or two areas where we, we had, you know, risks that could transform into something, but we made sure we presented those risks in the right light. So none of them ever became, you know, kind of ultimately deal breakers. I think the other thing to always be mindful, thinking about the potential audience here and sort of, you know, BC stage businesses and potentially those with international expansion ambitions always be thinking about legislation in new countries because we ourselves were quite very very good at it we made sure that if we went into a new geography we knew what we were doing we've got a license right we thought about tax right thought about vat right etc cetera, etc cetera. but actually in the in the picture of, v- of easing a u.s sales tax issue nearly destroyed that deal from, you know, their perspective, we were willing to walk away had they not kind of given us ultimately sort of helped protect the situation with that grass that, So I think you do, so easy to ignore tax when you're a startup business and you're thinking about going into new geographies and not, and not really thinking through about everything you need to do in those new geographies. But it's the one thing I feel that can absolutely destroy a deal over something that could have been managed had you kind of addressed it up front.
1: Especially if you're selling to a a US buyer who won't take a a view on this. It's either correct or it's not. Exactly. A couple of just quick follow-ups.
2: OCC? They're a um, sort of private boutique that do kind of quite technical due diligence uh, around in the sort of telecom sector particularly.
1: Right okay didn't know them and then just uh, for the non-accountants among us you basically... One, the argument that you can consider deferred revenue as a balance sheet asset. Yeah. Is that correct?
2: Well, it's less than that, but less, it's not a balance sheet liability is the way to think about it. Right. Because, because deferred, deferred revenue is, you know, basically people are paid in advance for a service. So you've taken the cash benefit, but you're still providing the service after you've taken the cash benefit. So obviously somebody's paid you in advance. That money's obviously gone into the general pot of the business and it's not sort of sat there as remaining as an asset for the, for the buyer. But the way that we got around that was by effectively, which is true, of course, you know, but explaining that that deferred revenue, it doesn't decline over time. So basically it refreshes because what happens is you, you reach the end of a contract, your customer renews. And so they sign another new contract and effectively you issue a new invoice, the same value. So it's just an ongoing, it's, it's part of working capital as opposed to being part of kind of a debt like item. So therefore a negative adjustments value.
1: And hopefully that the value of those individual customer contracts is increasing as well, which exactly. is clearly yeah. what you see at Go cardless.
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah.
1: So did you consider a, an IPO at any point within the, the
2: Yes, journey? I'd say we very lightly considered it. Lots of reasons, really. Sandoz, uh, a longstanding sort of a fat private sort of investor. They were original investors in World Online. Oh, I'm sure most of this audience will never have heard of But Going back in the early 2000s, they had a particularly bad experience with public markets through that particular listing. So they were, always felt that sort of the public listing wasn't the right sort of answer for Interroot. And as well, you know, I think it, you know, it's a real question to make. You know, I think we will, will definitely make those same considerations here at Carlos about whether it is or yes or no the right thing to do mainly because it does bring such huge restrictions on the business. I mean, I, you know, if you look, I've been following, obviously, you know, GPT. you know, they were, a pub, or still are, a public US business. And, you know, they have always been challenged, you know, very intensively about numbers and in, in the way that you are. You know, we had public debt, which we sort of almost, sort of almost in that place where you've got credit investors that are questioning you every quarter. But I think that the scrutiny you put under a, as a public business, when you have, been so used to running it without, you know, with a much longer term investor and with somebody who's really feeling, you know, really, really worrying about creating long term value. I think it's quite, a, you know, it's definitely something that it's not that I don't think it always is the right. Actually, I think for certain businesses, it can be. And it obviously gives you you know, an immense ability and access to capital. But I do think you need to pause and think about how it is going to change the management of the company, because actually maybe you are going to be better in sort of private ownership until you actually have a really, really, really big scale.
1: Just a couple more questions to wrap up, and I feel like I'm learning so much I could carry on doing this for, for a long time, but I really appreciate the time you're giving up. If you're giving advice to other venture-backed CFOs who perhaps haven't been through this process, but also, as most CFOs are, are kind of balancing struggling for investments and for growth with managing costs while thinking long-term in terms of maximizing exit and shareholder value any particular advice you'd give to to those people
2: yeah no i think it's very interesting because obviously i'm also come back into a much earlier stage environment here at go Carlos and it's actually something i'm being very conscious to tell myself to look you know Interroot would never, ever, ever have been successful had we not taken risk. And clearly, same here. You know, we, as an earlier stage business, and, you know, God is actually, you know, fairly advanced for, for many sort of businesses in the Notion portfolio. But, you know, you've got to weigh it up. You've always got to be conscious of what, downside is that's the way I tend to approach it is I always think okay what what's the worst case scenario from doing this and I have that in my head but I don't necessarily even always voice it it's just my own consideration of me thinking through okay if this goes wrong what happens what levers can we pull and what do we do and, and depending on like you know how strongly I feel about the answer in my own head depends on how much I escalate to people I think it is absolutely the CFO's job to keep a balanced Opinion on everything, and also just saying, Look, you know, if we do this, you know, this is the possible consequences. But there are also times where you think, Actually, you know what, the risk here, you know, we're going to invest X that, you know, X, whatever it is, a number in something. If it doesn't work, we've lost that number. Is that going to destroy the business? No. So you kind of move on from those decisions. You then have to think about the much bigger ones, which clearly could have, you know, if you are creating a real risk or creating a real liability for the business on a go forward basis. I think those you have to be very mindful of. So, you know, if you are taking a decision about your tax position or you're going into a new jurisdiction, you're not thinking about the legalities or the kind of the, you know, the way that you approach that market, things you need to do to make sure that you're complying with uh, local uh, laws and regulations. I think you do need to be very careful because, as I said earlier, those are the things that you can kind of, you know, destroy value. But always in a growth business, you've just got to think, you know, we're trying to build a business here. So we've got to take some risks we've got to allow the business to operate in a very fast moving pace because successful businesses aren't ones that stand still successful businesses are ones that have, you know, you know, basically change at a very fast pace because ultimately hopefully, you know, they're growing at a very fast pace. I think trying to impose the right culture from a cost control perspective is important. You know, I think that, you know, you do need to kind of live in a world of, you know, capital isn't endless and it's not all there as, you know, sort of, you know, just to spend on what you'd like. And so, you do need to be, you know, mindful and thinking about the way that you spend money. Cultural, you know, you've got to make sure that you sort of, you know, you build, you know, culturally that people both do that. And actually, you know, something we've been talking about here, actually, is that try and treat everybody in the business to think as, as if you're an owner. So to think like, you know, you are owning, you are part of the, the ownership team of this business. And if it was my money, would I spend it that way? Which I think is a really good uh, sort of philosophy to have amongst your employer base. It's a difficult job, you know, I even I, you know, with my years of experience, I'm kind of here sometimes and I'm thinking, you know, OK, I've got to weigh this one up, you know, and is it the right or not thing to do? But I think if you are an effective CFO, you learn to listen. I sometimes find I'm the one in a room kind of listening to everybody's different opinions, because obviously not always, you know, management team may debate about where they're going and when they're going to invest their capital. But fundamentally, you know, I will air my concerns. I will always try and highlight the risk, particularly if it's a big one. And then, you know, back the team with a strategy that we're, we're kind of underlining, whilst always making sure that clearly there's enough cash in the bank to support the business in the, at least, you know, 12, 18 months out. Because I think, you know, and if you're not in that position, then you need to be, you know, on your next fundraise, basically. So I think just trying to have all these factors, you know, it's a great role. I mean, I, I've always loved my job. I've been very fortunate to, to work with two very, very amazing businesses and two amazing management teams, which, which makes my life just enjoyable. But I've always loved coming to work. And I think the CFO, that role, thankfully, you know, wasn't that old traditional accountant role when I, you know, I managed to come just as things were changing, you know, was promoted by early. But ultimately, I've always held that sort of strategic kind of advisor to the business role, as well as being, you know, ultimately in charge of the numbers and the tax and, and the less, slightly less interesting parts.
1: It certainly is obvious when you look at the most successful tech companies that the CFO role is a pivotal and strategic one because th- these are complex organizations. Yeah, definitely. So I'm delighted that you're working at GoCardless. I was pleased beforehand. I'm even more pleased <laughs> after this conversation. Catherine, thank you. Any, any last pieces of advice? And if there are other CFOs out there who would like to talk to you, can they get in touch?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm very much up for giving back, so to speak. I love sort of, you know, talking to sort of less experienced CFOs who want to bounce ideas of, of someone like me who's been through what I have. So absolutely feel free to get in touch. And look, I think at the end of the day, you've got to always make sure you ask it, you know, as, as an accountant, because I think most CFOs ultimately will have been an accountant, at least have had that sort of training. You've always got to balance things. You've always got to make sure and never be scared to speak your opinion or your mind. And be very mindful of the fact that, you know, there is lines that you absolutely cannot cross, no matter how much pressure you're coming under. So you always act with integrity and, you know, making sure the numbers are reported right and all the rest of it. But it's such a great role, in my opinion, to be in. You know, I, I think you get the best of all worlds in the sense that you, you know, you're sort of carrying the pressure of the performance of the business. But I kind of always coped all, you know, pretty well with that on the whole. But you have this like ability to kind of almost be, you're not the CEO, but you're sort of their advisor at some level because you're taking a step back, looking at the numbers, telling them where the business is going, helping them think through, okay, I need to now think about this area because you know, either the revenues or the costs aren't working in that part. And so it means you're really integral to everything that's going on, and I've always loved that you know i've loved being i mean i am a very as you probably have gathered from this conversation quite a vocal person and he's not sort of necessarily quite northern as well still, even though I've lived many many years down south now, but I have that kind of you know i do give my opinion <laughs> um and I've never really held it back, but I think that's vastly important you know you the c f o has to be able to to speak up and to drive things but just learn and learn from mistakes i mean i've made so many mistakes in my career and i was very lucky to be spotted you know at my time in interview by both a very supportive shareholder but also by a very supportive ceo as well which is really invaluable to me making a success of my my own career so yeah so just enjoy it um never be scared to ask ask for advice you know use i know notion having a brilliant network around as well and always you know just think you know act with integrity while allowing and taking the risk that allows you know your business to grow and you're probably if you're in a tech world and you're in a vc you know notion about business you're probably in a really great place so good luck to everyone
1: Catherine. thank you that's been um, a fascinating conversation absolutely I really, really appreciate your time paul what a way to end yeah wow that was <laughs> stunning actually <laughs> really really really, really good yeah so that kind of brings to the end of this series and we've yeah. kind of covered of we covered 10 different topics We've had some amazing, amazing speakers. I think we started with Jonathan Gale. We then had Chris Topman talking about leadership. We talked with Maddie about hiring extraordinary people. We talked to Sarika at a Trade Shift about thinking about problems, not categories, when you're building a, a global leader. We spoke to Mark Roburge about growing revenue, Gibson Biddle, ex-Netflix, about product,
0: Fantastic. Uh, Hannah Dawson on pricing. Pricing, yeah.
1: Um, Dan Glazer, who is our go-to for anybody thinking about (laughs) anything legal risk. Yeah. On internationalization. And then Christina Fonseca on fundraising and then finishing off with with Catherine. So it's been been quite a series. And that's a a a good way to bring it to an end.
0: Yes. And the next series, people will have to wait a little bit because there's a surprise series coming up, which is a little bit different, which we recorded during a retreat. That's a fascinating one as well.
1: Yeah, that will be good. I'm looking forward to hearing those. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being as much of a surprised, hopefully excited um, listener as everybody else.
0: Yes. So looking forward to that and see you very soon. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Catherine, again. You're welcome. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview, along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources, If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thank you.